last Sunday and are thankful to be here this morning. Now, before we start the sermon, first of all, I want to say a shout out to our deacons and to Dave O'Meara. I don't know if you've noticed the facility this morning, the grounds, but these guys spent about five hours up here yesterday giving it their time to help take care of the facility. They were joined by some of the men and women of New Life in Christ, a Hispanic church that meets right after our service here, and they did an amazing job. Those men worked so hard yesterday to get things looking good, and we just want to appreciate them and thank them for that. So deacons, thank you for your work yesterday. And to Dave, thanks for organizing all that. These guys not only take care of the facilities, our deacons here do so much to minister to the body and help coordinate services and take care of so much. We couldn't do what we do without the ministry of the deacons of Gateway, and we're grateful for all the men who are serving on that. Well, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. As we do so, I want to remind us of the big picture of why John was written. And John told us that. We don't have to guess like we talked about before. He told us in John 20, 31 why this book was written. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, we've talked about this several times. We've done this study through John over these many weeks. Which, by the way, this is number 26 of our sermons going through John. And so you've heard this a lot over these last 26 weeks. But this is written so that we might believe. So we're seeing a lot of what belief really means. But it's not just intellectual belief. It's belief that gives us life. And so before we go on, I want us to say together this verse. It's a good verse for us to be committing to memory. So let's see if we can get it with the words on the screen, okay? You get a little help right now. Ready? Say it with me. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by, be- and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I almost messed us up on that one in the middle of it. So now, Taylor, let's take it down. Okay. Think you can do it? John twenty thirty one. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Give yourself a hand. That was a good job on that. The key word of this whole book is the word believe. That is what this book is all about. So turn to John chapter 8 this morning or find in your Bible app John 8. We're going to be looking at where CJ left off last week in this. And once again, we're going to be confronted with a theme we've seen week after week. And that is true belief versus false belief. What does it really mean to believe? And today we come face to face with a very particular question. And that's the question, can you be scared into genuine belief? Can you be scared into genuine belief? Is not wanting the consequence of sin enough to lead to genuine belief? Can it be, well, I don't want to go to hell, so therefore I'm going to believe in Jesus, and that's it. Is that enough to lead to faith that changes, a faith that gives a life in his name that we're talking about. And Jesus will give us a definite answer to that question. So if you come to John chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 21 this morning. And I want to ask you just to be listening for that. What is Jesus' answer to that question? Can you be scared into believing? And so would you stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God? John chapter 8, starting in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, 
when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who have believed in Him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you and your kindness to us that you've given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've not left us wondering who you are and what you require of us. And God, I pray today that your word would come alive, that you would speak through us, through your word to us, and you would open our eyes through the work of the Holy Spirit to know who you are and better what it means to believe. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So just the context, just to let us know where we are in this. Back at the beginning of verse 21, so he, Jesus, said to them again, now, like I've talked to you many times before as we go through John, this doesn't require immediacy. When you're reading this, don't think this happened an hour after he's just taught about being light of the world. The so, he said to them again, could be at any time in the future after what CJ taught us on last week. And so there's not necessarily immediately. So in this new teaching that Jesus is giving to the Jews, there's two different things I want you to see today, two main ideas that I think are important for us from this particular text. And the first one is this, wanting to avoid the consequence of sin is not enough to have true belief. Wanting to avoid just the consequence of sin is not enough to have true belief. Look back at verse 21. So he, Jesus, said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Does this sound familiar at all? Where I'm going, you cannot come? Well, it should, because just a few weeks ago, we were in John chapter 7, verse 34, and Jesus basically said the same thing to them in John 7, 34. If you put that, it says, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. If you remember from a few weeks ago when we talked about that, Jesus was saying, listen, I'm going back to heaven, and you're never going to be there. Friends, these are sobering words. Jesus is saying, where I am going, after I ascend, you will never be with me there again. And back here in John chapter 8, verse 21, he tells them the same thing. Where I am going, you cannot come. Same idea. But he takes it one step further here, and he says to them, you will die and your sin. Friends, there is no hint of universalism in Jesus' teaching. It's really popular today, to, and you even have quote-unquote churches teaching that everyone's going to be okay in the end and going to heaven. Friends, there is no hint of that anywhere in Jesus' teaching. Jesus looks here to the most religious, sincere, devoted people of the day and says, you are going to die in your sin, and you will never go to heaven to be with me. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't describe the hell that awaits him. He just simply states the reality. You're dying in your sins, and where I am in heaven, you will never be there. But they don't get it. We see that all throughout John. Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. They think, maybe he's going to commit suicide. Like they, they really don't get at all what Jesus is saying. And notice how he replies in verse 23 and 24. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
What's he doing with these contrasts? I'm from above, you're from below, I'm not this world, you're this world. What's he doing? He's basically calling out their unbelief once again. Obviously, they're of a different nature. He's God, they're not. That's part of it. There's something bigger going on here. Because if you think back to John chapter 1, verse 9, when we looked at John 1 a long time ago, right? It said this, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. We see that same type of contrast later in John chapter 3, verse 19. If you remember that famous account of John 3, come right after John 3, 16. And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so may be clearly seen his works have been carried out in God. So we've already seen several times in John here this contrast that Jesus has come into the world, but the world did not receive him. So when Jesus is saying, I'm not this world, you are. I'm from above, you're from below. Yes, he's saying we're of different nature, but more than that, he's saying, I'm the one who's been come, who's been sent by the Father to you, and you have rejected me. He's pointing out their unbelief. And of their many sins, their un- the unbelief is their greatest. And in case they miss it, he tells them very plainly in the next verse, in verse 24, back in John 8. He said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And notice the repetition here. The only hope to not die in their sins, the only hope to not face a judgment of a holy God, the only hope to not receive the wrath they deserve is to believe in this one, to believe in this Jesus. And we talked a lot about what is belief, and we can't stress it enough. That belief is not just intellectual knowledge. Yes, obviously belief is believing Jesus is God, that he lived a holy, perfect life. He died on the cross to the punishment you and I deserve for our sins, was buried, he rose on the third day. Yes, it is that. But believing is more than just intellectual knowledge. It's knowledge that changes us. It's faith that makes a difference. You remember way back from John 3, we talked about it's receiving a radical transformation from above. Friends, if we have belief, it will change us because we make him our, our master, our boss, and our Lord. And Jesus gives them an invitation here in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless... Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in in your sins. There's an unless here. They're headed on a path to hell, a path away from Christ in heaven, unless they will believe, unless they will repent, unless they'll receive this radical transformation from above. But will they? Verse 25, I think you know already. So they said to him, who are you? This is, friends, not a nice question. This is an indignant question. They don't like what Jesus is telling them. The you here is emphatic in the Greek. It's a scornful tone. Who are you to tell me that I can't go to heaven? Who are you to tell me that I'm going to die in my sins? Friends, that doesn't sound very different than today, does it? In this culture, if you tell someone, hey, I love you, but man, God says you're living in sin. You need to repent. The answer today is very much like the people here. Who are you? Who is that God who can tell me I can't live that way? The human heart an evil human heart apart from God is the same then as it is today. And Jesus responds to this scornful response of them in verse 26 here. And these are incredibly sobering words. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. Notice he doesn't say, I have much more to say to you. He says, I have much to say about you. What's he saying? I have much to say about you in judgment. You're not believing. You're not repenting. I've just called you to repent and believe, and you've rejected it, and you scorn me. So now the time has come for me to say much about you in judgment. And what, and what authority does he do that? Well, same authority we've seen throughout there, but in the middle of verse 26. But he who sent me is true, 
and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They didn't, verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And then verse 28, so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And as he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Friends, when Jesus tells them, I have the authority to judge you, and you're not repenting, so now I'm, I'm going to quit talking to you. I'm going to talk to the Father about you in judgment. When he says to him, he has the full authority to do that because God the Father has given him that authority. We've already seen that back in John chapter 5 and verse 22. In John 5, 22, we saw the similar thing. I think we've got it up on the screen for you there. Now I'll read it to you. John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is just doing what he's been telling them all along he's going to do. He has the authority to judge them for their sins. Now, pause for a minute here. If you're in the crowd, what would you do? Jesus just repeated three times to them this very sobering word. You will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. And then he comes to them and says, the Father backs me in that as I judge you. How would you respond? Well, look at what happens here to verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Wasn't that great? Yay, there's belief. They, they heard it and they're believing. But friends, I contend this is not true belief. And hang with me for a minute on this one. This is the, simply they don't want to be judged. They don't want the judgment of the Father. They don't want to go to hell. They don't, they don't want the consequences of their sin. They don't like being told you're going to die in your sin. And so they believe to escape the punishment, the penalty of their sin. But there's no indication they've fallen in love with God. There's no indication of submitting to Him. There's no indication of any type of radical transformation from above. Rather, this very same group Jesus is talking to, we're going to continue next week in this passage. But look ahead in John chapter 8, verse 42. These are the same people that just said believe. Now look at what Jesus says to this group that quote-unquote believes. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Does that sound like a group of people who are disciples of Christ? This is the people who just says that they've believed. What do they believe? They not believe the gospel. They don't want judgment. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to be punished. Therefore, they're giving an exterior indication of belief in Jesus to try to avoid the consequences of their lack of belief or the consequences of their sin. And friends, we've seen this before. We've seen this way back in John chapter 2 and verse 23. This happened once before, if you remember that sermon. John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for himself knew what was in man. Remember that sermon from a long time ago. We said that, sun, that Sunday that Jesus did not believe their believing. There's lots of people who give external things of saying, I believe, but Jesus knows the heart. And then in John 2 and here in John 8, they outwardly say they believe in Jesus, but Jesus knows their heart and knows there's no true saving faith. Friends, because wanting to avoid the consequence of sin, not wanting to go to hell is not enough to lead to saving faith. Well, that raises the question then, what then is real belief? What is real belief? And I want you to see the second thing from this sermon this morning is that the evidence of true belief is staying in God's word and having it deliver us from the power of sin. The evidence of true belief is not, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm praying a prayer and I'm going to do something good for someone else. 
True belief is staying in God's word and having it deliver us from the power of sin. And look at this. Jesus responds in verse 31. After this group gives this outward profession, they believe because they don't want to be judged. He comes with verse 31. This is a beautiful text of what true discipleship, what true belief looks like. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had, again, I'd almost put a quote unquote around believe, believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Just pause there. He says, truly, because that means there are people who claim to be disciples who are not. Then and now. There's people who have done all the external things of what faith, quote unquote, looks like, but they're not truly his disciples. It's not taken root. And friends, that's one reason why, as your pastor, we're starting in the Gospel of John. Because I pray there's no one at Gateway who's a member here doing all the external things of what church should look like and doing all the external things of what a good Christian should look like. And in their heart, they're far from God. I need reminders of the gospel. You need reminders of the gospel. We need to all be searching our hearts, making sure that we are in Christ and that we have saving faith, not just some type of external belief that our culture says is acceptable on this. But not only does he contrast true discipleship, you are truly my disciples, but don't miss the word are here, because I think in our workspace culture we miss this. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. He doesn't say you will become my disciples. And notice the important distinction that you are, we're not abiding in him as a work to become his disciples. We have a tendency to want to work to get to God. This is not, hey guys, I know you say you believe, but look, if you'll just do more abiding in my word, then you're going to become my disciple. No. He's saying, you, if you abide, you already are my disciples. Friends, the abiding in him is the fruit, the evidence, the external evidence of a change that he has already wrought in our hearts. And what is it that he requires? What is it that's the, not that he requires, but it's the evidence of being in him? He says it here, abiding in my word. What does it mean to abide? It's not our word we use every day, right? Did you talk about abiding this morning over a breakfast table? Probably not. What does abiding mean? Abiding means to remain in something. Abiding means to hold to something, to continue in something. Friends, abiding means we never leave something. So when we abide in his word, that means we never leave his word. Ultimately, this means that, friends, our faith in Jesus had a starting point. Now, it's okay if you don't remember where that starting point is. What's important is that you know you have faith. I know some evangelists who come through and try to kind of scare people into, if you don't know the day and the hour, you need to repent right now and make sure it's right. Now, it doesn't matter if you know the day or the hour. You, what you, check your heart. Make sure you have saving faith. Now, but friends, if your faith has an ending point, it's not real faith. If there was a point in time that your faith quit being real to you, that's not real faith. You may have been one who's raised as a kid. But, you know, I became a teenager, and not just stuff seems crazy, but I'll just keep going to church because my parents make me. Friends, that's not real faith. Friends, if you're one who perhaps grew up in the church and you did the church thing all your life, but then after you, after you got out of the house and got your job, you're like, I don't really need this, I'm not real interested. That's not faith. That's not abiding. Genuine faith, the evidence of it is continuing in, remaining in, abiding in. There's no end point to it. It's continuing in what? It's continuing in His Word. What does that mean? His Word. He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Abiding in His Word is abiding in Jesus, abiding in everything He has taught, everything He is, the totality of all of who Jesus is and all that He has taught. It is continuing in that. And obviously that includes the Bible as we know it. Because apart from the revelation of God, we know nothing. And so it's abiding in these words of the Bible so that we know who He is, but ultimately it's abiding in the person of Christ and knowing Him for who he is. And that is real continuing faith. And that is the evidence of us really having saving faith. But friends, if we have 
genuine saving faith, not because we don't want to go to hell, but because we've fallen in love with Jesus. And it's manifest in abiding in him, abiding in his word. There's something else that comes with that as well. And I put that in our point there. The evidence of true belief is staying in God's word and having it deliver us from the power of sin. Friends, one of the evidences, one of the marks that we are in Christ is that we continue in it, it doesn't stop, but it also is it's making a difference. Following Jesus, believing is a radical transformation from above. Look back at verse 32. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Friends, Wednesday nights we were working through the attributes of God for those who were here. We talked about that God is truth. When we look for truth, we look to God because he is the only standard of truth. It's knowing the truth is ultimately knowing God. And the result of knowing God, of knowing truth, is freedom here. Verse 32, you will know the truth. Ultimately, we know God. We know his word. And that then sets us free. What does it set us free from? It sets us free from sin and from the power of sin in his life. But these people don't get it. They don't understand they need to be set free. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, they assert they've never been slaves. Well, obviously they had. Their ancestors had been in Egypt for 400 years. But that's not the point. They're making a spiritual point here, friends. They're saying, listen, we are the children of Abraham. We are the circumcision. We are the true children of God. How can you dare imply? Who are you to dare imply that we have any type of bondage in our lives? We're, the, we're God's children. And don't miss what they're doing here. They're, they're putting their confidence not in God's grace in their life. They're putting their confidence in their religious heritage. They're putting their confidence in their background, their ancestry, their religious rituals. And again, human nature doesn't change any different today. We probably all know people who are confident their lives show no indication of God's grace. Their lives show no radical transformation from above. And yet you talk to them, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, why? Well, when I was seven, I, I went forward in vacation Bible school. And, and there's nothing else. There's no fruit. There's no evidence. But they were okay. Or, you know, I'm really a good person. You know, I, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't anything bad. I, I come from a good family. My, 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 my grandmother went to church. You know, we're good people. It's the same thing. Or my parents went to church. I went when I was a kid. I'm okay. It's no different today. Human nature is the same. People are putting their confidence, not in the gospel changing them. They're putting their confidence in their social status, their heritage, their prestige, their church membership, whatever it is. And Jesus gets right to, cuts right to the chase and gets them at the heart. Look at verse 37. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. And Jesus goes right for their heart. He's saying, okay, that's, that's great. You, you, you are Abraham's descendants. I get that. But what difference does it make? Because you're not acting like Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith. You're showing no faith. He was a man who pursued righteousness. You don't have any righteousness here in your heart. And so he's showing that their actions show that that heritage makes no difference to them. Instead, what do they like? Verse 34 through 36. This is sobering words Jesus has. He says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus looks right at him. He says, okay, you say you don't have any bondage. You do have a bondage. And it's worse than any human slavery. As awful and, and terrible as human slavery is, so there's a slavery that's far worse, and that's your slavery to your sin. Because it's a slavery that has eternal consequences on this. And it's a slavery that's not just for them, but it's for the, all of us apart from Christ. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
That means, friends, apart from Christ setting us free, every single one of us will be a slave to sin apart from Christ's mercy in our lives. What's the only hope for us? Verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How does he do it? He comes, he lives a perfect life, he fulfills the law that you and I have broken. He goes to a cruel Roman cross and he absorbs the wrath of a holy God that you and I deserve to receive. He took it upon himself instead of us receiving it. He dies, he takes that penalty, but then he rises on the third day, defeating death, so that he can defeat death and offer to us a life as well. Then he can come back to us back in verse 24 and tell us, I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so Christ does what we can't do. Christ comes and he takes the curse for us so that you and I can be free. And friends, if we really believe that, if we really fall in love with him for doing that for us and for the world, if we understand who he is, it will change us. It will cause us to desire to live for him. So friends, I want to ask you before we come to communion this morning, two questions. One is, are you, have you believed in such a way that it's continuing today? When you look in your heart today, as the Holy Spirit searches your heart, is there continuing belief? I didn't ask you if you went forward in Bible school 10 years ago. I didn't ask if you did the thing because your parents did. But is there in your heart right now continuing belief because of what God had already started in your life in the past? Are you abiding? Are you remaining? Are you holding fast to Jesus today? Is there continuing faith in your life? But second of all, I think we all have to ask the question, am I living like one who's free or am I living like a slave to sin? Am I living like one who's free or am I living like a slave to sin? Because this text is so clear. Christ died to make us free. Christ did not die so you don't go to hell but get to keep being angry your whole life. Christ died to set us free from that anger. Christ did not die so that we could be bound to bitterness or unforgiveness the rest of our life. Christ died so that we could forgive even our worst enemies so he can change us. Christ didn't die for us to stay a slave to lying, to gossip, to slander, to loose tongues. Christ died to free us from those things. Christ did not die so that we could be hooked on porn or sexual addictions or other type of lustful thoughts. He died to set us free from those things. Christ didn't die so that we could be enslaved to doubt, fear, and anxiety the rest of our life. He died to set us free from those things. He didn't die so we could be people pleasers and live for the fear of man, find our identity in what others think. He died to free us from those things, friends. And so we have to stop and ask the Holy Spirit to search our heart. Friends, if those things are, and there could be many others, are still in our lives, why are we still living like slaves to those sins when Christ died to set us free from them. And so we come time to the time of communion. This is a precious time in the life of the church. It's very fitting with John 8 this morning. Because when we come to communion, we're reflecting on what Christ did, the sacrifice he made for the penalty of our sins, where he took the wrath of a holy God so that you and I would no longer have to be slaves to sin. So you and I can be free from anger, free from lust, free from bitterness, free from unforgiveness, free from all these things that have enslaved us for all these years, to have a free life, to abide in Him, to find joy in Him, to live for Him. And so before we come to take communion, I want to read to you just a few words from 1 Corinthians 11, and then I want to ask us to have a prayer time before we do that. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Paul warns us, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So before we begin, I'm going to ask Ira if he'd come play for just a minute for us. I want to give you just a few moments in silent prayer before the Lord. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, is there in my life abiding in you? Is there abiding faith 
that isn't that is because of your work in me, not because of what I've done, because of what you've done. And just search your heart and just see that. But then furthermore, I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, is there any areas where I'm not living free? God, is there any areas where I am still acting like a slave to sin? Because Christ came to set you free from that. And before you come take the bread and drink the cup, and remember Christ's body being sacrificed on the cross for your sins, I want you to have a minute to confess that to the Lord. If there's anywhere you're living as slaves to sin now, something I've mentioned, something I haven't mentioned, take a few minutes and confess that to the Lord so that you come to the table with, because of God's grace ready to remember his sacrifice. As Ira continues to play, I want you to hear Romans 6 while he keeps playing. Romans 6, chapter 12. Let this be part of your prayer to the Lord right now. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching and to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness.
Father, I thank you that we can come to you right now, even thinking about sins, reflecting on sins, confessing sins, not overwhelmed by guilt, not overwhelmed by shame, not overwhelmed by condemnation, but knowing, Lord Jesus, you took our guilt, our shame, and our condemnation. We can come to you right now knowing that that's already been paid for on the cross. No matter what sin we've committed, we know that we can come to you knowing, Lord Jesus, you have taken that on you, and so we can be free. And God, I pray that now as we've thought about these things, I pray that we confess these sins, Lord, not because, we need, because you need to forgive us once again, but because you've already forgiven us on the cross. We, God, we confess them so we can be restored to a right relationship with you. We don't want our fellowship with you to be broken. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice you paid on that cross so we might be set free from our slavery to sin and that we might live for you. Father, as we come now to this ordinance that you've given to us, this time of the Lord's Supper, as we break the bread and drink the, the juice from the vine, I pray you will remind us what it reminded those early disciples in the early church, that while free to us, our salvation was not free. You were so holy, you couldn't overlook our sin. It had to be paid for. So, Lord Jesus, you went to the cross willingly. No one made you, you went willingly to have your body broken, your blood poured out so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. Forgive us for losing sight of that so often. And God, I pray even for my own heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters as we celebrate communion this morning. God, I pray we would be reminded of that incredible cost, incredible sacrifice to purchase our freedom. And God, I pray because of that, we wouldn't just take it and move on, but we would live as free men and women the rest of this week, free from the bondage of sin in our lives, that we might glorify you and worship you. Have your ways to continue to worship you now through this time of communion, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul wrote, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it, said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, that's what we get to do this morning. As we close out our service, what a, what a great way to close it out. What a special time in the life of the church. We get to remember that the Lord Jesus, his body was broken on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That he willingly let his body be broken. That he endured agony unlike anything we could ever imagine. The agony that we deserve for our sins and he bore it in our place. He let his blood be shed. Scripture is so clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he shed his innocent blood that we might be forgiven. Our deacons are going to come help, help us observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to ask our praise team if they'll come first to receive the elements so they can get back to playing and singing for us. And then Dave will direct you um, row by row to come receive the elements. And like we say always, our encouragement to you is if your heart is not right with the Lord, if you are not a child of God, don't take this. Please remain in your seat and just pray and talk to the Lord. But if you know you're a child of God, you have abiding faith, then come, celebrate, rejoice at God's grace in your life.